Hi everyone, welcome to our podcast, The Gen Z Debate, investigating and debating issues of our future. In this podcast, we use our individual subject knowledge to discuss questions that our generation faces about our future, regarding climate change, the political and economic landscape, and the scientific reasoning behind them. In this episode, we are very fortunate to have Bruno Pagano, founder of the website Actual Economics, to discuss the diversification of Saudi Arabia's economy towards ecological tourism and green energy, in a bid to reduce its reliance on its unsustainable oil and gas industry. Today, we will cover the current state of Saudi Arabia's economy, why it needs to change, how it hopes to change, and the implications of its shift for sustainable technologies on the international market. Saudi Arabia holds the second largest oil reserves in the world and produces 12 million barrels a day. It is the largest exporter of crude petroleum in the world, with oil and gas accounting for roughly 50% of the country's gross domestic product. As a result, in recent years, the Middle East has been investing heavily in solar power and other renewable energy and green technologies. So I'm sure some people have heard about the Vision 2030 project announced by Saudi Arabia. So how do these fit in with the Vision 2030 project? Vision 2030 is a project launched by Saudi Arabia that plans to bring in numerous changes for the kingdom. As one part of this, the Saudi Green Initiative, which is pushing for a move towards green technology and a greener environment, announced in October 2021 that by 2030, they would like to achieve 50% domestic electricity from renewable energy, reduce carbon emissions by over 4%, and plant 40 billion trees. The National Renewable Energy Programme is another initiative part of Vision 2030, which has been launched to improve Saudi Arabia's renewable energy production, trying to reduce the use of liquid fuel, and diversify the energy methods used in renewable energy production. Other projects are also active for improving energy efficiency to reduce energy consumption and waste. But Manav, can you explain what exactly is green technology? Well, green technology describes the use of science to reduce damaging impacts on the environment and its future. Examples include wind energy, electric vehicles, solar panels, hydroelectric energy, tidal energy, and much more. Green technology reduces carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gas emissions, reducing pollution and the effects of global warming. Green tech also reduces the use of non-renewable fossil fuels, which are limited in availability. Knowing this, Saudi Arabia is trying to eventually reduce its dependency on fossil fuels as part of this project. Now, out of all of the green technology available, Saudi Arabia would want to put its eggs in as many baskets as possible for economic reasons and reliability issues of most of these renewable energy sources. But considering the environment, one technology that seems intuitive for them to move towards very quickly is solar energy. How would this work? So, yes, there is huge space in the Middle East for widespread solar panels, with sunlight easily accessible and a great amount of solar energy to be harnessed. Deserts are also rich in silicon, which is the raw material used for the semiconductors from which solar cells are made. Double-sided solar panels that are breaking records for efficiency would be certainly desirable in this move towards clean energy. To develop such technology, the teams involved are creating two-sided solar cells. This type of solar cell not only converts sunlight into energy more efficiently, but also produces a higher intensity of electricity. However, while one might think that solar panels in such a hot part of the world would be highly efficient, it is actually the opposite. Solar panels are made up of photovoltaic solar cells. Within each solar cell is a thin semiconductor made from two layers of silicon. A semiconductor is a material which conducts electricity more than an insulator, but less than a pure conductor. One layer is positively charged and the other negatively charged, creating an electric field between them. When photons, i.e. light rays, from the sun strike a solar cell, 
it transfers its energy and excites electrons in the semiconductor, causing them to be released from their atoms. Those free electrons interact with the electric field surrounding the semiconductor, and this motion forms a direct electrical current, which is converted to more usable alternating current using a power inverter. But the hotter the temperature, the more energy the semiconductor already has, and the greater the number of electrons that are already excited. This reduces the potential difference or voltage that the solar panel can generate, in effect reducing the rate of flow of electrons, and therefore the solar cell's efficiency in current generation is reduced. The quickly increasing and decreasing temperatures during the day and night also creates rapid thermal cycles, which can be damaging for the solar panel's materials. Teams involved in the Green Initiative project, however, are currently working on technology for cooling solar panels. By using water vapour contained in the atmosphere, which has a great cooling potential, they are now able to cool solar panels, improving generation efficiency. With the use of moisture in the desert atmosphere at night, they can collect enough water vapour to carry out the cooling process. Another issue is that the solar panels have a lower albedo in comparison to the desert sand, as the solar panels absorb the sun's radiation to generate energy, as opposed to reflecting it upwards away from the Earth's surface, as the desert sand does. Albedo is the measure of the amount of the sun's radiation reflected by the ground material. So solar panels absorb a lot of the sunlight energy, and while some of this is transferred to electricity, some is also converted into heat. Hot solar panels cause the air near the surface of the earth to increase in temperature, encouraging a flow of convection currents, which may trigger precipitation. An increase in rain would promote the growth of vegetation, which further reduces the albedo, as dark vegetation also absorbs radiation more than the reflective sand. This can, as a result, increase global temperatures via the atmosphere and ocean currents, imposing the further effects of global warming, which we were trying to reduce in the first place with these green technologies. In addition to these issues, Saudi Arabia would require massive batteries to store the energy generated during the day to continue the power supply throughout the night, which would rapidly increase costs. As well as this, long-distance transportation of electricity through power lines comes with some energy loss. Now, James, would you mind talking us through the current state of the Saudi Arabian economy and the current risks of how it's being run? So energy transition is now among the highest policy priorities for the Middle East and oil producers, as historically they have been highly dependent on the oil and gas industries to uphold their fast developing economies. Saudi Arabia's exports are mostly made up of oil and gas with 70% worth of its exports. And since the largest oil company in Saudi Arabia, Aramco, is nationally owned, most of the government revenue is generated here. And reports show that as much as 53% of government revenues were oil-based. Now, while it's great that the Saudi government can tap into oil revenues and generate a large revenue, such a great dependency leaves the economy in a relatively volatile position and subject to shocks on the international market. However, oil is a safe bet when it comes to resources of countries, and there is in the short term definitely going to be a market for it, which makes me wonder if Saudi Arabia really is all that vulnerable. There have been several oil crises most recently in 2015, and history shows that while the international market collapsed, it only drove up demand for oil, which Saudi Arabia benefits from greatly as they can meet 13 to 14% of the demanded 92 million barrels a day at the height of the crisis. However, the pandemic spotlighted the structural decline of the oil market as there were recessions and a decrease in demand for oil, alongside uncertainty as to whether demand would again grow. We know now that the Russia-Ukraine war has placed significant demand on oil exporting nations and driven prices back up. But after this war, will we see a return to the historic lows? 
Okay, so it is clear that demand has been affected, as well as the supply of all. But how does this actually translate to the current situation and the situation that we've seen over the past two years? So let's focus on the demand side first. Containment measures and economic disruptions related to the COVID pandemic have led to a slowdown in production and mobility worldwide, producing a significant drop in global demand for oil. In April, the International Energy Agency estimated that demand was down 30% compared to a year ago, reaching a level not seen since 1995. Faced with a significant drop in demand, producers were scrambling for facilities to store the surplus crude oil, with oil stocks reaching an all-time high in June 2020. Since then, the pressure on storage capacity has eased somewhat as the effect of production cuts takes hold and the market starts to rebalance. And this just shows the effect of the pandemic in great depth. Now, on the supply side, arrangements that have historically allowed oil-producing countries to respond collectively to drops in demand have so far not been sufficient to stop production as the 2015 oil crisis showed where Saudi Arabia did not want to reduce production for the benefit of the international market. Just as the global impact of the COVID-19 crisis was becoming apparent in March 2020, the members of the OPEC plus alliance which are OPEC members plus other oil producers and the Russian Federation amongst them They failed to extend their agreement to cut production, resulting in some producers, including Saudi Arabia and Russia, briefly flooding the market. With oil demand starting to collapse as lockdowns took hold, an agreement to cut production was eventually reached by the OPEC Plus group on the 12th of April 2020. The agreement, which involved cutting the collective daily output of these countries by almost one quarter for the next two months, represented the largest cut in the history of the producer group. Yet the rapidly evolving crisis and its impact on oil demand makes it unclear whether the intervention will be sufficient to rebalance the market as soon as the OPEC plus countries had anticipated or if at all. Thus, the lack of international cohesion and the self-interested nature of oil producing nations has led to an increase in volatility in international shocks. And the conflict in Ukraine has only added to the uncertainty since the pandemic. So will we see a return to the historic lows of oil prices pre-pandemic? Will the Russia-Ukraine crisis once again throw a spanner in the works for international trade of oil and gas? So building on this, I would like to ask our guest Bruno, how is Saudi Arabia changing under this project and what are the plans for the future? Is a shift to green energy really realistic? Okay, well, building on what James has commented on, it is very clear that Saudi Arabia must reduce its dependence on oil or else the economy is likely to collapse due to the global movement away from non-renewable energy sources. In response to this, Saudi Arabia granted zero contracts to oil-powered or gas-fueled power stations in the Middle East and Northern Africa region throughout the first half of 2021. Yet in the same period, there were about $2.8 billion worth of renewable energy project contracts awarded in the region, with a culmination of $104 billion worth of renewable energy projects being planned. This comes out of the Crown Prince's Vision 2030, which includes several projects to diversify the economy, including the increased production of renewables. One of these projects is the emergence into the market of green hydrogen. Saudi Arabia have set the aim of becoming the largest exporter of green hydrogen by 2030, a market which is projected to expand by 54% in the same time period. To achieve this, Saudi have already committed to building the world's largest green hydrogen production plant, which is scheduled to start producing hydrogen by 2026. Should they achieve their goal, this will be a significant stepping stone in their ambitions of achieving long-term economic stability 
as electricity demand continues to rise by about 5% per annum across the Middle East and Northern Africa region. Therefore, if Saudi Arabia can become efficient in their production of renewable energies, such as green hydrogen, and consequently supplement the rise in demand, they could regain their pre-existing economic strength within the energy markets. So Bruno, you mentioned that they have $104 billion worth of renewable energy projects being planned. Are these all confirmed? And if not, what is the likelihood that these projects will all go ahead? Well, Mano, out of the $104 billion worth of projects being planned, $21.5 billion worth of the projects are at the contract tendering stage and are likely to lead contract awards in 2022. Of the remaining $82.4 billion of planned projects, only about $4.1 billion are at an advanced stage of design, with the vast majority, some $78.3 billion worth of projects, still under study. Therefore, there is a possibility that many of these may not go ahead. However, the ambition within the leadership in Saudi is very strong, particularly under the helm of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And while there may be the possibility that not all of these projects go ahead, the hierarchy appear committed to achieving their goals. But still, it is impossible to know at this current time, and ultimately, only time will tell whether their projects are genuine or merely a pipe dream. Now, Manav, I'm sure you've heard Bruno talk about the increase in green hydrogen production, and what does this mean for our previously discussed global transport shift? Could we see an increase in hydrogen electric vehicles? And some of our listeners from before may remember that our first podcast episode was on the battery electric vehicle and the hydrogen electric vehicle industry. And one of the drawbacks that we had for the hydrogen electric vehicles was that there wasn't sufficient infrastructure in place yet. But could this push for more hydrogen tech increase the likelihood of hydrogen electric vehicles being present in the region? So yes, Saudi Arabia plans to become one of the world's leading hydrogen producers and exporters, which actually links back to the Gen Z debate's first ever episode, which was about the global electrical transport shift, as you mentioned. But before I go on to this, I'd just like to mention that in addition to everything that we've said before, Saudi Arabia has also promised to work on developing carbon capture technology, using captured carbon to produce chemicals and synthetic fuels, increasing public transportation, and better waste management. And yes, fourthly, the hydrogen production. So what this increase in hydrogen production might mean for the hydrogen transport industry is that there is clearly some motivation in certain areas of the world to move towards hydrogen technologies. Therefore, perhaps investment into the industry may be quicker than previously imagined. The lack of infrastructure and investment may now be less of an issue. But on the other hand, we cannot predict this investment motivation to extend beyond the Middle East, nor do we know how much of Saudi Arabia's promises will become a reality as they face practical challenges. So to conclude, this is exactly what we need to be thinking about. What is the likely difference between the theory promised and the practical result? Has Saudi Arabia considered everything on paper or are there further challenges to be discovered that will sway the results? One example of this is, as mentioned previously, Saudi Arabia's economy is hugely dependent on oil, with reserves able to last perhaps another couple centuries. So the industry will very likely remain for a while in the future considering the economic factors. Therefore, maybe we should also focus on improving the energy efficiency of the oil industry itself and reduce its effects on the environment. All right. Well, thank you very much, everyone, for listening. That's the end of today's episode. And I'd like to say a massive thank you to Bruno Pagano of Actual Economics for coming in and talking about the diversification of Saudi Arabia's economy. And you can go and read more about this on his website, actualeconomics.co.uk. Thank you very much for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Thank you everyone for listening into today's episode of the Gen Z debate. I hope you found that interesting.